Well, welcome everybody to week two of One Big Story. This journey we're taking together as a church through the pages of the Bible. Now, when I say we're walking through the Bible, that doesn't mean that we're going to get to look at every story or every chapter or even every book in the Bible, because honestly, that'd take a whole lot longer than just nine weeks. No, what we're doing is taking sort of a big picture, 30,000 foot overview of the Bible, what theologians call the meta-narrative of Scripture, which is just a fancy way of saying we're looking at the Bible as one big story, that the Bible is not just this collection of stories about God, but it is one big story of God. And from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells the story of God's redemptive love and his passionate pursuit of prodigals, just like me and just like you. And so that's what we're doing, but our goal is not just to help all of us get a better understanding of the Bible as a whole. Really, the more important goal for us is to figure out how to find our place in God's story. Because God's story didn't end with the last words written on the last page of the Bible. And being a part of God's story is not just limited to those people who lived thousands of years ago and got their name in the Bible. We all have a place in God's story. God is continuing to write his story, not only on the pages of history, but on the pages of our individual lives. And I really love the way the Apostle Paul communicates this in Acts chapter 17. Look at what he says. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. What does that mean? Paul's saying, look, God is not just this force that created everything and then let it unwind. He is the Lord of it. He continues to be engaged with it, moving and working in this world. And because of that, look at what Paul goes on to say. He, talking about God, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For in him, in God, we, that's all of us, we live and we move and we have our being. In other words, you were created on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose is found in connecting your life to God's story. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done or not done, whatever environment you grew up in, Whatever wounds and scars and traumas you carry with you like all of us do, you have a part in God's one big story. But as we discovered last week, being a part of that bigger story is not automatic. Just because you are living and breathing doesn't mean your living is a part of God's story. Just like we saw last week with Philip, and the Ethiopian eunuch, there is some practical things, some steps you have to take to connect your story with God's story. First, we saw you just got to be open to God's leading. You got to be open to let him write your story. Secondly, we saw you got to be willing to connect with others in order to give and receive help. And then third, you got to be willing to take the risk of taking the next step to where God is 
leading you. And so what I'm hoping, what I'm praying for is through this series, is you're learning all this information about the Bible, maybe things you didn't know before, that you won't just get so hung up on the information. But every week you'll ask yourself, God, what does this part of the story lead me to do? What changes, what adjustments, what steps, what risks do I need to take? Because that's really what this whole journey is all about. And so since we've kind of set the stage, today we're actually stepping in to the story, God's big story. And we're going to begin in all places in the beginning. We're going to look at the creation story, the creation narrative that is recorded in the first two chapters of the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn and click there. Uh, for those of you who struggle to find things in the Bible, like somebody says, turn to Romans or Corinthians, you're like, I don't know where that is. I don't know the order of the Bible. Hey, if that's you, this week is your week. Because you can find this one easily. Just open up the left-hand side of your Bible, turn past the table of contents, go past the preface, and boom, there you are. You're a Bible scholar today, right? Now, before we start looking at the creation narrative, the creation story, there's two very important things that all of us need to understand about creation. First of all, that while the moment of creation is the beginning of our connection to God's story, it is not the beginning of God's story. When Moses wrote, in the beginning, he wasn't saying that it was the beginning of God because God has no beginning. He has no end. God is eternal in both directions. He's eternal into the future, but he's also eternal into the past. He's always existed. And if that makes your head hurt, welcome to the club. I'd spend all day trying to explain it to you. If I could, I can't. It just is what it is. And the second thing you need to understand about creation is that while the creation story is one of the most familiar stories of the whole Bible, it is also one of the most controversial aspects of the Bible. Over the last 150 years, there's sort of been this debate, this battle about creation. And that battle's been fought in our classrooms, our, our courtrooms, in the national conversation. And the, the core of that debate about creation is centered around the how and the when. How was everything created and when did it happen? And there's sort of basically three viewpoints on creation. On one end of the spectrum, you have what you might call strict creationist or early earth or young earth creationist. And this belief is basically that creation happens exactly as it's spelled out literally in the first two chapters of Genesis that God spoke everything into existence over a six-day, 24-hour period of time, and that that event took place somewhere between six and 8,000 years ago. That's one end of the spectrum. Now, way down on this end, you have what you might call materialist or materialistic um, evolutionist. And, and this viewpoint is that creation has nothing to do with God because, well, there is no God. 
that creation began with a huge explosion of energy billions of years ago, a big bang, if you will. And this explosion of energy created bits of matter, physical matter that had never existed before. And those little pieces of matter been to, began to connect with one another to create bigger pieces of matter that ended up turning into stars and planets around those stars and asteroids, all the things that exist in the universe. And on one particular planet, that just so happened to be uh, the exact right distance from its star, the sun, and just so happened to be tilted on just the right axis that it was able to sustain carbon-based life forms. And millions of years ago, in the primordial soup of this planet, these single-celled carbon-based organisms developed. And over time, those single-celled organisms begin to connect to one another and to create multi-cell organisms, and over a process called uh, natural selection, that over that process, over millions of years, it created all the diverse life forms that exist on planet Earth today. Now, obviously, these are two very uh, spread apart viewpoints, right? But you know, they both have one thing in common. Do you know what that is? They both require faith, a huge amount of faith, either faith in God or faith in the power of randomness over long periods of time. Either way, it's a faith issue. And since we as human beings don't do really well with taking things on faith alone, over the last 50, 75 years, sort of this middle ground view of creation has developed. Uh, it's sometimes called uh, theistic evolution, or you may have heard it more recently as intelligent design. And this viewpoint is kind of that God created everything, but he used all those processes of evolution and time that he was working behind the scenes, that God spoke and that was the big bang. And, and so God was in control of it. And this is a very comfortable place to be. It's a comfortable viewpoint because it allows us to hold on to our faith in God and yet at the same time not seem kind of backwoods, out of step with modern uh, thinking and science. And so here's the thing. This is a comfortable place, but truth is not always comfortable, right? You know, the Bible says the truth will set you free. It doesn't say the truth will make you comfortable. So what is the truth about creation? I don't know. I wasn't there. Nobody was there. Like Moses, who wrote the first two chapters of Genesis, wrote the whole book of Genesis, he wasn't there. I guess he was closer to it than Charles Darwin and, and Stephen Hawking, but the truth is nobody knows. I can tell you kind of where I lean, what I believe. I'm, I'm kind of a little bit over on this area. I'm more of a, a creationist. And you're like, well, duh, Philip, you're a pastor. Obviously, you have to toe the party line. But that's not really why I lean this way. But be before I was a pastor, I was a scientist. I, I was a science teacher for 10 years. And so I've studied. I, I've studied the theory of evolution. I've read the origin of a species. I've read a little bit about the Big Bang theory and all of that. And, and theory is a great word. All of that is good science, but ultimately it's just theory, right? It's good theory, but theories have holes. They're not laws. They're not scientific laws. And so there, there are missing links there in that. And so I guess what I'm saying is wherever you are on this spectrum, where, whatever your beliefs are, it doesn't make you a bad person, doesn't make you a bad Christian, doesn't mean you're going to hell. All I would ask you to do is whatever you believe, own that belief and why you believe it. Like, don't believe down here because of what I said. 
But don't believe down here based on what your high school or college teacher said. I mean, for heaven's sakes, they let me teach science in high school. You know, how good can that, that be? What I'm saying is just wrestle with it, own it. We live in the information age. There's tons of stuff out there. Explore it with an open mind, but don't get hung up on the how and when of creation because that is not the most important questions we need to be asking about creation. Whether it's a figurative narrative that we're reading in Genesis or whether it is literal events that took place, the most important thing for us to understand about creation is not how and when, it's who and why. What does the creation narrative tell me about who God is and what does it tell me about why I am here? And that's what I want us to drill down on today. Four key life lessons from the creation story, practical application from creation that we can start living out this week in our daily lives. Four things we learn from creation. One, we learn that God is powerful and creative. God is powerful and creative. Whatever your point of view about the how and when, two things are obvious when you look at the creation around you. That whoever or whatever did it was incredibly powerful and incredibly creative. The Bible places those attributes on God. And it does so in the very first line of the big story of God. You know, all great stories have a great opening line, right? I, I think about um, Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. You remember the opening line of that novel? It was, the best of times it was... Right, some of you are literate, you read. God bless you. Uh, one of my favorite opening lines was not a novel, it was a movie. Some of you people old like me, you remember Brian's song? That great movie about uh, Gail Sayers the, and uh, Brian Piccolo, the running backs with the Chicago Bears. Do you remember the opening line of that movie? I'll never forget it. This is how it opens. It's been said that all true stories end in death. This is a true story. See, what makes a great opening line a great opening line is one, that it captures your attention, and then secondly, it lays the foundation for the whole rest of the story. And that's exactly what the opening line of the Bible does. Notice Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Key word, created. That one word encompasses both the power and the creativity of God. We use the English word creative to mean a lot of different things. You know, a painter paints a beautiful picture of a flower or a, a nature scene, and we go, man, he's very creative, or she's very creative. Or a chef comes up with a brand new recipe, and we go, man, that's a creative recipe. But the Hebrew language, the language that Moses wrote the creation story in, the word there is the Hebrew word bara. And it literally means to make something out of nothing to bring into existence something that has never existed before. And that, friends, that's a whole nother level of power, and that's a whole nother level of creativity. Because see, as human beings, 
Our power and our creativity is limited to just rearranging what already exists. It's the first law of matter. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. So all we can do is rearrange whatever exists. Like, it's unbelievably creative to take a huge block of marble and with a hammer and a chisel carve out of it a beautiful statue of David, the young shepherd boy, which is what Michelangelo did. That's unbelievably creative to be able to do that. It's way more creative to make the rock in the first place, right? Or as human beings, we have harnessed the power of nuclear fission, nuclear fusion, splitting the atom. And we've seen the power of that, nuclear explosions, nuclear energy. It's incredibly powerful to split an atom. It's nothing compared to create the atom and push those things all together. That's what creation tells us. You're like, great, that's awesome, Philip. What does that have to do with my life, with my struggles, with my reality? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here's the practical application. In our own power and our own creativity, the best we will ever do with our lives is simply rearrange what is already there. That's why when you want to make a change, you just rearrange, right? You, you rearrange your relationships. You lose some weight. You change your address. You get in shape. You, you do whatever it is. But we're really just shuffling chairs on the deck of the Titanic. And we're really creative at moving around and trying to make them beautiful. But the bottom line is the ship's going down and we're going down with it. We don't need a new arrangement of deck chairs on the ship. We need a whole new ship. And that's exactly what God provides. Notice 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone belongs to Christ, there is a new creation, not a rearranging of the old, a new creation. The old things have gone. Everything is made new. Bara, made new. So when you find yourself marveling at the beauty of creation, when you find yourself looking at the mountains or the sea and thinking of the power behind all that, remember this. The same God who created all that something out of nothing still has the power to create something out of the nothingness of my life and your life as well. That's a great life lesson from creation, but it doesn't stop there. There's a second life lesson, and that is just the importance of God's Word in our lives, the importance of God's Word. So how did God bring all of this something out of nothing? What did he do? What technique? What process? How did God get all this stuff to be created? Did he wave a magic wand? No. What did he do? It's not a rhetorical question if you know it. He what it into existence. Spoke it into existence. In fact, to me, one of the most striking things about the whole uh, creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 is this fact that, that God spoke. In fact, if you read the first chapter of Genesis, you'll find six occasions when this phrase appears, and God said. In fact, in some English translations, you'll notice that phrase is bumped over into the left-hand margin to emphasize it, right? God said light, and there was light. God just said land, and there was land. 
God said yellow. God said fragrance. God said water. God said man. What's striking to me about that is the level of personal involvement with creation that that communicates. Whether you think the first two chapters of Genesis is figurative or literal, it's very clear that it is written to make sure you know that God was not just standing back as some distant cosmic, you know, force in the universe, that he's personally engaged with creation. And listen, that level of personal involvement continues in our world and in our lives today. God is still speaking. Now, when I say God's Word, what first comes to your mind? What do you think about? Again, not rhetorical. What do you think of as God's Word? The Bible, right? The the Bible. And it is God's Word to us. And one of the ways God speaks is through His Word. But it's not the only way God still speaks today. God still speaks to us and the world around us through His creation. Look at what Paul writes, Romans 1.20. It's for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God speaks to us through His Word. God speaks to us through the creation around us, but it doesn't stop there. There's a third way that God speaks to us, and that is through the life of Jesus, the example of Jesus' life. No other person from ancient history has had their life more documented and more well-preserved than the gospel narratives of Jesus. And why is that? There's really no reason for us to have all of this information, all of these historical narratives, all these details about what Jesus did and said. Why would that be? Why would a peasant, itinerant rabbi who used to be a carpenter, who just had a public life for three short years, who never held office, never wrote a book, never had a military victory, Why do we have all this information? It's clear to me that God wanted to preserve and provide for us the example of Jesus' life. Yes, about his death and his resurrection, but also about how he lived. God speaks to us through the behaviors, the words, the heart of Jesus. That's why I love how John, the Apostle John, when he gets ready to write his eyewitness testimony of his life with Jesus, I find it fascinating that he opens his gospel with the exact same words that Moses used to open up the creation story. John said, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then look at what he says, John 1, 14. Then the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God wraps himself, invisible God wraps himself in visible flesh, enters our world so that we could connect our story with God's story. And we do that not only through the salvation he gives, but by living based on the example that his life gives us. People say to me sometimes, boy, Philip, I wish God would speak like he did back in the Bible days. I wish God would speak the way he did to those people I read about in the Bible. Are you kidding me? 
God is speaking way more right now in this generation than he ever did back in the old time. They didn't have God's written, preserved word in multiple languages that anybody could read. They didn't have the example of the word made flesh living among us. God is speaking. The problem is we're too busy to slow down to listen. We're too busy and too focused on ourselves to stop, look at the beauty of creation around us, and absorb what it tells us about who our God is. We're unwilling to be disciplined enough to spend daily time in God's Word, not for intellectual or academic study, but to hear God's voice speaking to our heart. We're too busy doing our life to connect relationally with Jesus by being willing to connect relationally to his body on earth today, the church, to connect to other believers. God's still speaking. The question is, am I still listening? Am I willing to listen? There's power in God's word if you'll slow down and listen. Third lesson from creation, and this is important, God has a plan. God has a plan. The creation narrative not only shows us that God is powerful and that God is creative, it also clearly shows us that God is a God of order and a God of planning. I mean, you don't have to be a rocket science to look at the solar system and how these planets move around in the exact same order at the exact same speed. It is so orderly, you can set your watch by it. Literally, right? Isn't that how we tell time? By the solar system and the turning of the earth and the trip around the sun. There's order in that. There's a plan there. God, you see that in the human body. One of the most fascinating things for me in my undergraduate years, getting my undergraduate degree in biology was when we studied gross human anatomy, when you start seeing how all these parts, the muscles, the bones, the tissue, all that, and then in biochemistry, all the cool chemical processes that bring that body to life, it is obvious that there's planning, there's an order in that. I mean, even something as simple and mundane as a beehive. There's unbelievable order in a beehive. You, you see it, first of all, in the honeycomb. These little tube-like structures that the bees create in order to store the honey uh, where the eggs hatch and where the larvae, they're octagonal in shape. They're not circular, they're octagonal. Because geometrically, the octagonal shape is a stronger shape. There's a plan in that, right? And not just the structure of the beehive, but the order of the society, the social order within bees. You ever read about that? All bees are not the same. In a single hive, there are multiple bees who play multiple roles to keep the beehive moving and thriving. You've got a queen, you've got worker bees. And what is so amazing, I don't know if you know about this, the worker bees are the ones that go out, find the flowers and get the nectar and bring it back to make the honey, to feed the queen, to feed the larvae. That when a honeybee finds a new patch of nectar, a new patch of flowers, when they fly back to the hive, they communicate the exact location of those flowers to all the other worker bees. And you know how they do it? Through a dance. Yeah, I'm not making this up. It's called the waggle dance. You can YouTube it, Google it, you can watch it. Through a series of circular patterns of walking 
And by the way they vibrate their body and their wings, they communicate to all the other bees who gather around them and touch them with their antenna and see them with their eyes. They get the information, and a bee who has watched a waggle dance can fly directly from the hive to the patch of flowers on a straight line from A to B. There's planning. There's order in that. There's not only planning in the stuff God created. There's a plan in the way he created it. The process, right? Whether you think it's a figurative or literal story, it's clear creation occurred over a six-day step-by-step process. God created things in the right order, at least from my perspective. He created oceans before he created swordfish. Good idea, or otherwise you just have fish flopping around on the dry land. He created eucalyptus trees before he created koala bears. And I'm glad, otherwise, who would want to see starving cute little koala bears, you know, right? So there's an order to that. In fact, look what the Bible says in Genesis 1.31. This is at the end of creation. It says, God looked at everything he had made and saw it was what? Very good. That phrase, very good, literally means that it was right, that it was orderly, that it was according to the plan. Of course, I know the next question because I got it myself. Well, if God created everything so good, why are things so bad? If God created this perfect order and world and plan, why is there so much chaos in the world? Why is there so much chaos in my life? Why didn't God create a perfect paradise where everything was perfect and everything worked good and there were no struggles, no pain, no problem? Why? Why didn't God create that? He did, right? Read that. He did. The chaos is not from God. The chaos is from us. We brought the brokenness in it. And we're going to look at that next week. That's the story we're looking at next week. You know, Adam and Eve and the apple and the snake and all of that. But what I want you to take away for this week, till we get to that, here's the practical application. It's this. If God cared enough to have an orderly plan for a beehive that is here today and gone tomorrow, don't you think that he's got a plan and an order for your life? The Bible sure says that he does. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They are plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Understand, these words, they were spoken to the nation of Israel. This promise was made to the nation of Israel at a time when they were in the midst of the greatest chaos and struggle they'd ever faced as a country. They had been overthrown and defeated. They had been carried off into exile in Babylon. And God said, bad news, guys, this is a long-term struggle. You're going to be here in Babylon for a long time. Go ahead and plant vineyards, start having children. There's no quick fix to this struggle. So God says, look, you're in this for the long haul. But then he says, have hope. I'm working a plan. God's plan is not defined by the temporary struggles or pain that I have. I'm sure the bees don't understand the plan. They just trust the planner. And we are offered that opportunity as well. And then finally, number four, the fourth practical lesson 
from creation is that it's God's story and we have a part in it. It's God's story and we have a part in it. If there's one thing the creation narrative makes clear is that creation is not about us. We are not the central character in the creation story. I'll prove it to you. How many days did it take God to create everything? How many days of creation? I'll give you a hint. Six. What day were humans created on? Day six. We barely got in, right? (laughs) Now, you'd think God would have created us on day one so we could have helped him out, advised him with all the other things. Like, God, the, the neck of that giraffe, way too long. That just looks awkward. God, we don't need cats. Dogs are fine. Cats are hard to get along with. We don't need those, right? Man, here's what what the creative narrative says loud and clear. God created everything, and then he invited us into his creation, his story. I love chapter 2 of Genesis where God scoops the dust of the earth together and forms the man, and then he breathes life into Adam, the man, which is what Adam means. And in that moment, the Bible says, in that exact moment, Adam became a living, breathing, existing, conscious being. Imagine that wake-up call, right? All of a sudden, boom, you're awake, and you're surrounded by paradise, and you're looking directly into the face of God. Look, the Bible doesn't say what Adam said or what God said, but in my imagination, I could just imagine God looking down and saying to Adam, welcome to the story of me. Because creation is God's story. See, see we have a tendency to look at creation and go, oh, God did all this wonderful stuff for little old me. No, you just got invited in. He did it for his glory, not mine. Look what the Bible says, Psalm 19.1. The heavens, that's creation, the heavens declare that Philip is a really great guy. It's not what it says, isn't it? It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies announce what his hands have made. So what's our role? If the story's not about us, what's our role in the story? Two things. One, we are to be stewards or managers of creation. We were given dominion over creation. Dominion does not need, mean dominate. That's what we think it is. Well, it's all about us. What is used for us? No, it means we are stewards of something that belongs to somebody else. And we need to take care of it. But we have a second role in creation that's even bigger than our role as stewards. And it's found in Genesis 1.27. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now that last sentence, that's what everybody wants to argue about, fight about. Maybe we'll talk about gender at some point. It's a a good topic. But what I want to focus on today in this creation story is this whole concept of being created in the image of God. Because nothing else in creation has that or does that. Everything in creation reveals God. We are the only thing that bears his image. And you say, well, maybe it is a little bit about me. You know, I'm the crown of creation. I bear the image of God. If you're thinking that, you don't understand the purpose of an image. The purpose of an image 
is to not make much of itself. The purpose of an image is to make much of that of which it is an image. The value is not in the image. The value is in the thing it's an image of. I'll ask it this way. Would you rather have a picture of a $100 bill or an actual $100 bill? Right, because one's got true value. Our value is found in reflecting God to the world around us. That's our role, and we play that role by being who he created us to be and doing the things he created us to do. When we do that, as we do that, we make much of him. But here's the sad truth. Too many times, too many of us, including me, we trade our role as image bearers in his big story to try to star in the story of little old us. We try to make it about us. And look, you can make much of God or you can make much of yourself, but you can't do both. Bottom line is, we have a choice. Every one of us, we have a choice. When we leave here today, we will make decisions and choices that either will make much of us and our little story, or we will reflect the love, the beauty, the glory of the God of the universe to the people and the world around us. You can keep living for your story, or you can take a next step in the one big story that is eternal. So would you pray with me? I don't know what you came in here with today, what's going on in your family, your work, your life, your health. Maybe you're bringing in a lot of pain and unanswered questions. Maybe, maybe you're in a good place. I, I don't know what you brought in here with us today, but I think I do know what God wants you to walk out of here with. It's just recognizing that even in the struggles, you can build your life on His trust, on His promise on his story that he has a plan and he's got order and even when you don't understand it, you can take that next step into the painful unknown and know that he is faithful and he's still writing your story thank you Jesus it's in your name we pray amen